Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I remember when I was much younger that I had a situation where my hand, I felt a stinging in my hand when I was lifting some weights and I thought, well, I might have pulled a muscle or something. And uh, I let it go for a while, and the more I lifted weights, the more the pain got. And so I decided to lay off lifting up weights, and about a couple months later, I lifted it again, and the pain was even greater. And so I thought, man, this is not good. And then I was invited to go to Indiana to speak at a conference there, a Bible conference. And while I was there in a, in a dorm room that they had given to me, I started to kind of push around in the palm of my hand, and I found a lump in there. So eventually I thought, that's not good. Pain, lump, that doesn't fit very well together. So I went to the doctor, and I went to a doctor that decided to put some oil on it. Then he had a hot metal object that he vibrated, thinking that that'll do something, and that didn't work. So then I went to a surgeon, and he says, that has got to come out. And so I opted for surgery where they didn't put me out. I was awake while they cut into my hand, and they took that out. And I don't know the, the, the medical term for it, but it was like a one-cell giant fatty tumor inside my hand and it was causing pain pushing on a nerve well they took that out but this hand doctor he wrapped up my hand so much and this part of my hand the palm of my hand actually looked like a club he held it up here and he taped it around my body and he said now don't move this hand that often hand surgery can be more challenging than eye surgery because of how your hand is made And of course, I didn't want to disagree with him, so I did that. But I found that when your hand is wrapped up like that, you can't button buttons, you can't zip zippers, you can't do a whole lot of thing when that hand is up like this. And so I'm wondering, why does such a a little giant cell tumor in a hand affect my entire body and everything that I did so much? And again, that reminded me a lot about the Lord, that it just takes one person that is hurting and the whole body of Christ, everybody in the body and the membership hurts as well. But then I got thinking about these big NFL football players. Now, these are men that really work out. They are on the special high-tech weight machines. They're lifting these weights. They are fine-tuned bodies of uh, lean, mean, smashing machines, we would call them. And so when they break a leg or they hurt themselves, you know, they really hurt themselves if they don't play. Some try to play for, with an injury for a while, and then they have to sit on the sidelines. And it really takes that. But it's interesting how that there is a particular injury that's not a major break, it's not a major sprain, but it's an injury nonetheless that has laid a lot of guys on the sidelines. One is Mark Bavara that used to play for the Giants and the Browns and then ended up playing with the Eagles. And he tells us in his uh, testimony that he was sidelined for many games with what is known as turf toe. Apparently turf toe is when you drag your toe on the turf when you play football in a certain way and it does something to your toe. And so he was affected by it, but he's not the only one. There was another guy that played, Bill Bates, who was part of the Dallas Cowboy organization. And not only did he get turf toe and keep out for a couple of games, he struggled with this for eight years of his career with just turf toe. So yes, it could be a major hit, so to speak, to the body of Christ where someone really has some tragedy. But sometimes it's something just so small. And it kind of reminds me about my body and your body, and that is this, that every part of my body needs every part, pretty much, of my body. And if we use that same analogy with the Lord, since God says when you trust Christ to save you, you're a part of his body, that you are somebody in his body. And it is, every part of his body needs every part of his body well-connected and all placed together. And how important that that really is, and we need to work together. And so that's why I'm doing this series on biblical unity. 
Now, not so much talking about what you agree with regarding music or length of hair or clothes that you might wear or some of the areas that we have certain degree of freedom. And I know there's a threshold there when you might get into immodesty, etc. But I'm talking about some of the major issues, which would be our belief system, our core values that often can unite or divide people. And how important that is, because when the body suffers, however it might be, whatever they might be impacted by, it will affect us. Let me give you an illustration. You know that Hurricane Ike hit the Gulf Coast, and I'm sure all of you know or heard of people that have been suffering. You've been watching it on television. But I think that even that, being far away, unless it's someone that you know dearly and they're suffering and somehow you need to reach out to them, you probably are thinking that that's a distant calamity, that I'm so sorry for those people, and your heart does go out to them. But pretty soon you're going to realize that they probably, that storm impacted our whole oil industry, which will affect our gases here. So even there, what's going on in that part of our country will be affecting us. So when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And when one part of the human race suffers, we also can suffer the same thing. And so that will have an impact on us. I wouldn't be a bit surprised that seated right here in this room, some of you are hurting right now because of something that's gone on in your world. And I know that someone else would love to come alongside you if they knew it to help bring you some comfort and relief. Well, Jesus had a lot to talk about, bringing the body together, comforting one another, and being strong. He had a lot to say about this, especially when he put his famous prayer in Scripture about his prayer for unity. But we need to answer the question, what it isn't? What unity really isn't? And I think this is important because for us to know what unity is, we have to put it up against what unity is not. And so let me quickly say what unity is not. It's not this. It's not oneness at the expense of truth. You know, there's a There's a movement today that thinks that what we need to do is to dummy down our doctrine so much so that we bring it to the lowest common denominator. We'll call that ecumenicalism. And so now we're going to uh, uh, support people who will deny or abandon the cardinal doctrines of the faith. Well, I want you to know that unity is not abandoning the correctness of what real truth is. In fact, sound doctrine, while it will divide, sound doctrine often will come together and bring people together in unity. Here's something else that unity is not. Unity is not a political organization. You don't use unity as a buzzword, as maybe a brand that you might like to say. We have unity. Unity is important. This is what unity is. And then we define unity apart from what scripture has to say. And then we browbeat people, intimidate people, manipulate people through a political machine to get them on our page with us rather than understanding what is biblical unity and then striving for that unity from a biblical point of view. Unity is also not produced by programs and curriculum. There's not enough programs, there's not enough curriculum to be able to bring about a particular type of unity. You might have solid teaching, but just having that alone, you can have it externally, but it doesn't mean that you'll have unity in your heart. There are a lot of people today that outwardly might be teaching what might be truth, but inwardly it's not there. And we know that according to the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So even if you have all the curriculum in the world and all the programs in the world, you cannot stimulate nor maintain true biblical unity by merely having it written on a piece of paper. It has to be etched on the epistle of our heart. And number four, unity is not an ecclesiastical organization. We need to make the distinction between an organization and an organism. Now, there are a lot of people today that say that they'll be a part of a church. Now, this might be very... uh, appalling to some of you, but there are people today 
that will go to a church, and because that church has a lot of what we might call technicolor, surround sound, bells and whistles, a lot of activities, a lot of ministries might be there, and perhaps a lot of good, charismatic, slick speaking, if I'll use that general term, that people really are drawn to that. Sometimes they'll go to that church because of the beautiful facilities. Other times they'll go to that church because the right people are part of that church. And then when you get into sound doctrine, it is not their clarion call. In other words, they'll compromise based on the doctrine. They have a different doctrine, but that's not important to them. So they'll check out a church based upon the external shell of a church rather than upon the core value of a church. And it's those true Christians that understand what biblical unity is all about for the glory of God. They'll um, slide aside those other peripheral issues and remember that what's important isn't all the technicolor and surround sound, but it's sound doctrine. Now let me quickly bring this into balance. There's nothing wrong with those other issues. They're all great, great ministries, good speaking, great worship, good ministries in the church and programs. But as long as it's built upon the bedrock and foundation of solid Bible doctrine and core values. Apart from that, we don't have it. So ecclesiastical organization won't do it. You have to have it based upon a good set of beliefs. Now, we have to answer the question, what it is. You know, if we know what, what unity isn't, then we have to understand what it is. One of my favorite Peanuts cartoons is maybe one that you've seen. It's one where Linus is watching television and Lucy comes in and she immediately makes her demands and says to Linus, change that station. I want to watch something else. And then she raises her fist. Remember how she would do that in the cartoons? Making her demands known. And so Linus, in his little sheepish way, would look to her and say, well, what gives you the right to come in here and tell me what to do? She says, these five fingers separately are really nothing. But when they come together in a fist like this, it's a terrible weapon to deal with, you know. And so he then looks down a little dejected and says, all right, what channel do you want? And Lucy is victoriously smiling at the end of this. And after he changes the channel to what she wants, Linus then looks at his hand and his five fingers and he says, why can't you guys get it together like that? Well, I think there's a little humor in that. You know, you can have a lot of organization, but even organizations cannot maintain the unity unless it's coming from within, and only the body of Christ can, and here's why. Because all the members are connected together, just like this hand. These five fingers are nothing separately, but what makes them a mighty force to deal with is because they're connected to a hand, essentially connected to a body, and connected to a head that will direct this hand to be used as something to build, something to encourage, something to help, maybe even something to defend, but should never be used as a weapon to do warfare with. So that being said, there are five truths, but those truths are connected to the greater truth of Scripture that's connected to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is unity? And I'm going to really keep it simple on this. Unity is nothing more than being in a right relationship with one another. It's built on love. It's built on sacrifice. And it's also built on a common commitment to the Jesus Christ that's found in Scripture. It's when we prefer others more than we prefer ourselves. And I'm going to tell you that that's going to transcend any other type of activist group or organization. It's because we want to be in a biblically right relationship with one another. And to have that right relationship with one another, it begs this. Are we in a right relationship with God? For when we have a right relationship with Him, then we will have the fullness of God within us that gives us the ability then to build a right relationship with someone else or at times even to endure 
a relationship when someone else is coming against you and to still have stability in that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's go back to this relationship. It's a right relationship. Listen, when we as a church family, or even as your personal family, are together in a right relationship, isn't there a great deal of peace and joy? Isn't that really trying to uh, get the clutter out where you can think more proactively? You become more creative because you're not bogged down with guilt, depression, discouragement, trying to sort out the problems. Doesn't that help you come together where you seem as a family and even as a church to be able to build and to move forward? In fact, you'll find in Scripture that when people are in a right relationship with one another, what often happens then is an explosion of the one another principles where we're really encouraging one another, supporting one another, praying for one another, lovingly correcting one another, playing with one another, teaching one another, having fellowship with one another, and something else that's often overlooked in the body of Christ is this. The ability to accept one another where they are and then to give God time to change that other person that we're just going to love them and be there and try to partner with God to help that person to grow. That's when we have unity together and it becomes so well. Now, as I was looking at this whole concept of unity and the church, I had to go back to scripture, obviously, because that's where this is coming from. And who would be better to read from than even the Lord Jesus Christ? There's no one. So as I looked at the life of Christ and I studied his writing, I wanted to find out what did he have to say about unity in the church? So I began with the church. Do you know that Jesus Christ never really spoke about organizations? But he did speak a lot about organism, the body and people and relationships, but never about an external organization. In fact, he only used the word church once in his writing. And here's what he said, and it's found in your little worship folder there. It says, Jesus made this one statement and he said this, on this rock, referring to himself in the context, I will build my church and the gates of hell and Hades shall not prevail against it. And when he said it in this context, even then he wasn't talking about the organizational church of a local church with deacons and elders and all the rest, nor was he talking about an ecclesiastical machine like a denomination or religion. What he was talking about was everyone who would trust Christ as Savior and be a part of a universal church of those who know Christ as Savior. And he says, upon me, I will build my universal church of relationships with other people. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't have some bit of structure in mind in the future because then the Lord prompted through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, to write to the Ephesian believers there a little bit about what a church would look like. And then he had Paul write to Timothy about setting up a church and Titus and planting churches. But even, folks, listen carefully. As much as you want to learn all about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church from those writings of Scripture, you will still not find a highly tuned, well-organized machine that often we see today in churches. You see basic leadership, fellowship, Certain things that need to happen, like people coming to faith, people growing, people learning how to be leaders, people worshiping the Lord, people not forgetting global and local evangelism. But all that other stuff is usually put in there by man. Now, let's go a little bit further with the Lord. Since he began to say that upon me, I'm going to build my universal church, then I have to say, what kind of a church does he want? And it seems like from Scripture that he was really concerned about the health of his church and the health of his church was going to be born upon unity. And so what he does is he looks at all of his disciples and he picks the one disciple to record for us today his prayer about unity for then and for today for us. And who did he pick? He picked John. Now, in my opinion, I thought that was interesting. He could have had Peter write it because Peter wrote some material in the New Testament. He certainly could have had Luke write it because Luke wrote probably the majority of the New Testament as far as all the content of it. 
But he picked the disciple whom Jesus loved. In my opinion, the most relational disciple of all, the one that he knew would be the one known for relationships. People knew that he was a loving man, leaned on Jesus' bosom. And so now what he's going to talk about is unity, and he wanted to have a highly relational apostle record what he prayed to God the Father. And if you'd like to, you can follow along. I'm going to read this prayer to you, at least a strong portion of it. And I want you to pick up his heart right now. He says, yes, upon this, this rock, I'm going to build my church, but I want my church to be together. And here's what he says. I do not pray for these alone, referring to those that are just present with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the preaching of these guys that are with him, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, I in them, you and me, that they may be made perfect or mature in one, and that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. You know what's so amazing about this wonderful relational prayer about unity that the Lord prayed about the coming church was that he really used the greatest example of unity. He pounded it into this. The greatest example, the greatest model, the greatest paradigm is the unity that God the Father has with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. I thought that was absolutely profound as we see this together. There is unity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now stay with me. Even though there is unity with it, there is also diversity. If I could really reduce it to one simple thought, almost too simple. God gave his son. Jesus gave his life. The Spirit gave his power to those who trusted in Christ. And yet they have different ministries, but yet they are all one. And so that's the greatest model of still being all one, yet having different responsibilities, different ministries, different shapes and sizes. And let me tell you, that's where there's power, is when you have all three together. Now listen to this. Do you know that the Trinity was also together at the creation of the world? In itself, that is an extremely profound event in many ways. But again, to keep it simple. The fact that you had three together as the world was being created and we are all here together because three were together at the very beginning. Can you only imagine what we would be as a faith family when we are all together in one family working together with all the creative juices of Almighty God to continue to be used to build his body when we're all together? The power that we will have. William Hendrickson, which is a tremendous commentator, and I encourage you, if you're looking for some good commentaries, that you might want to get his. Here's what he has to say about this. He says, The unity for which Jesus is praying is not merely outward. He guards against this very common misinterpretation. He asks that the oneness of all believers resemble that which exists eternally between the Father and the Son. In both cases, the unity is of definitely spiritual nature. To be sure, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in essence. All believers, on the other hand, are one in mind, effort, and purpose. When believers are unit, united in faith, 
and a common front to the world. This is cool. They exert power and influence. When they are torn asunder by strife and dissension, the world will not know what to make of them, nor how to interpret their so-called testimonies. Believers, therefore, should always yearn for peace. Here's what I like. But never for peace at the expense of truth. For unity which has been gained by means of such sacrifice is not even be worthy to be called by that name. Now another commentator, Leon Morris, agrees with this, but he said something that was even more impacting than that. He added to that this. Listen carefully. The unity for which the Lord prays is to lead to a fuller experience of the Father and the Son. And this, in turn, will have the further consequences that the world will believe. It will transcend all human unity. The unity in question, while it is spiritual unity, rather than one of organization, as we have seen, yet has an outward expression. For it is a unity which the world can observe and which, and which will influence the world. Now, some of you might be hearing some stuff and you're trying to say, now exactly, Stan, what is he saying? What is he meaning? Let me see if I can make some sense of this and why I see it so profound. Something that I think would take a while for you to really meditate on and grasp why we're really talking about the seriousness of biblical unity. All right, first of all, we know that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all unified. In a few moments, we're going to learn how that when we trust Christ as Savior, we are now in him. Now, when we are in him and scripture says he is in us, that means that we have within us the unity, diversity, unity of the Godhead of all unity living within us. Now, if I have all of him and that unity in me and you have all of him and his unity in you and you have all of him when you trust Christ as Savior, but now you decide to allow him to have control and abide in your life, getting rid of that sin, then you have so much of the unity of God within you and the possibility, potentiality of having unity that now my unity with the Holy Spirit and God in, in Christ and your unity with God, Holy Spirit and Christ can now come together and our church will be held together not by our glue of unity. It'll be held together by the glue that's holding the unity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together. He is in essence holding us together. And by all of that, it's not even just about unity. It's about our intimacy with God and then the tremendous influence and impacting we have on the world, which is ultimately what he wants. Sure, he wants us to be close to him, but there's so many deeper lifers that are in the closeness with God. And they forget that, yes, I'm to love him with all my heart, soul, and mind, but I'm also to love those who are outside and to make disciples of all nations. So a proper understanding of that unity is to be so close to him, be so unified together that we glorify him by reaching out with that message of the gospel, which includes intimacy of unity with him. So now I need to answer the question, what is its foundation? <clears throat> well, I'm going to go back to the prayer, if you don't mind. What's the foundation of this unity in the prayer? So let's look at number one. It's the pattern of unity called the Godhead. Spoke to that. Now let's look at it where you can mark it in your Bible. He's praying, the Lord is praying, that they all may be one. So if you will, circle the word all. He is not having any one of us left out of the responsibility of being one with one another. Every one of you, every man, woman, boy, and girl, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter who's come against you in the body, whatever you might be having in your life right now, God still wants us to be one. Then he uses the illustration, as you, Father, are in me. 
And then it says, and I, Jesus, in you, the Father, that they also may be one in us. Now just stop there. That they may be one in us or in the Godhead. And so our pattern of unity is going to be the Godhead. So if you want to say, can unity be achieved? Yes. If it can be achieved with God, the Godhead, it can be achieved with me. How can it be achieved with me? The more I'm willing to immerse myself in God, and this way I can say it, as I immerse myself in the understanding and the proper application of God's word, because that's where God is known to me through his word, and the spirit gives me that understanding, the deeper I'm in his word, the deeper I'll be in the Lord, and the greater I'm going to have unity. Chuck Colson He wrote a book that's a little old now, but it's still just as profound. It was a book on the church, the body. And here's what he had to say. Listen to this. The unity of the church expressed in our Lord's Prayer in John 17 is not the kind of the unity that is being touted by the World Council of Churches. They have tried to reduce the elements of faith to the lowest common denominator. Now, here's the sentence I like. True unity is not sought by pretending there are no differences, as modern ecumenists have done, but by recognizing and respecting those differences while focusing on the orthodox truths all Christians share. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear. P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.